welcome to the Perinatal Substance Use Disorder ECHO program. ECHO is all about everyone teaching and everyone learning. So something that I really like about ECHO is that they're so focused on this multidisciplinary approach to education that nobody's voice is more important than anybody else's and to recognize that a whole patient requires a whole approach from everybody. Substance use does not live in its own little world. About 40% or so people with substance use disorder also have a co-occurring mental health diagnosis. This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders throughout the GEM state. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare you and me. Today, we're kicking off the second season of our podcast. If you're just joining us, our first season was all about opioid prevention, treatment, and recovery in Valley County and throughout Idaho. For our second season, we're going to be continuing our conversation on opioid prevention, treatment, and recovery, but we're going to be honing in on substance use disorder as it affects pregnant patients. We'll be bringing you recorded didactic presentations from Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Lecture Series, recorded in 2020 and 2021. In Idaho, women with substance use disorders face many barriers to treatment, including limited access to prescribers and insurance coverage, lack of available mental health services, and the fear of inadequate treatment of their condition. For pregnant women with a substance use disorder, the situation is exacerbated by provider uncertainty. While early screening and intervention for substance use disorders can be a determining factor in reducing substance use during pregnancy, studies have found provider discomfort with responding to a positive substance use disorder screening to be a significant contributing factor to the underutilization of evidence-based screenings. Today's episode features a presentation by Jerry Woodworth, OB nurse at St. Luke's Maternal Fetal Medicine Clinic in Boise, on the topic of substance use and mental health in pregnancy, overview, and screening. But before we get to that, I'm going to turn it over to Echo Idaho's Marketing and Communications Manager, Lindsay Lotus. In 2020, Lindsay interviewed family medicine physician and Echo participant Dr. Katie Gray from Desert Sage Health Centers in Mountain Home, Idaho. If you're not familiar with Echo Idaho and what it offers, this may help give you an idea. Dr. Gray, thanks for joining me on Something for the Pain. How about you start by introducing yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Katie Gray. I am a family medicine physician in Mountain Home, Idaho at Desert Sage Health Centers, and I provide full-spectrum family medicine with obstetrics, including surgical obstetrics. Thank you. So I want to start with the fact that Desert Sage is a federally qualified health center. Uh, Why don't you talk a little bit about what that means for listeners who might be unfamiliar? It's a very special place. When I was in medical school, uh, my family medicine rotation was through a federally qualified health center clinic. Um, Before I started medical school, I actually worked at a lookalike as a volunteer. And then when I did my residency, I specifically chose a program where my continuity clinic, where I was seeing patients as a resident, was also an FQHC. It's just the comprehensive care and a huge part of the community um, to be a community health center. 
lot of people are going into medicine because they want to be able to help others. And, and FQHC gives you a lot of that liberty of you don't ever have to turn someone away um, because of inability to pay. Uh, so we see patients of all payer status, whether they have a private commercial insurance, they have a state-based insurance, or they're uninsured. And because it's built that way, not only are you able to see everybody, uh, it also means that the resources are built in to be ready for patients that are going to need extra sources of support, like medication assistance programs or um, additional payment programs or sliding scale or things like that. Yeah, I love that you don't have to turn people away just based on insurance or ability to pay. That is so important. How about we move on to Mountain Home itself? Can you describe a little bit about what it's like to live here and and what what the town is like? So Mountain Home is a fairly small community. We have about, I think the last time that I looked at the population was close to about 30,000. Um, and uh, a big piece of the population is the Mountain Home Air Force Base. Uh, there is a, a fairly uh, diverse community here uh, in terms of thinking about healthcare, in terms of uh, payer status and, um, and age. Uh, so we we have younger families, uh, especially through the Air Force Base, um, but we also have older patients that are retired. Um, we have patients that are uh, working on farms, um, whether that's as a migrant worker or as, uh, as their career. Um, and so we, we see patients of kind of all walks of life in a fairly small community with a big military presence. That is a really interesting pool of people. And it has me wondering, you know, could you talk a little bit about the community's access to healthcare and um, maybe some of the challenges that come with working in rural areas? It's been really interesting in COVID uh, for for access and for the challenges of reaching out to other providers in a more rural community. Um, we are definitely very lucky that we are not far from Boise, but that certainly can still be a barrier for patients to get up to Boise um, for an appointment. And so COVID's been very interesting because there's been so much more virtual care uh, that for some of my patients being able to say, we're gonna refer you to a specialist, but they'll actually probably do it over the over the video is kind of helpful. Another amazing thing about our clinic is that we have a grant in place to be able to provide transportation for patients up to Boise. And so that's just this extra, extra, you know, icing on the cake, right? Of I can tell a patient, you, I want you to go see the specialist in Boise. And if they tell me I'm going to have a lot of trouble getting there, I get to say, hey, guess what? We can help you. We can take care of that. I do find that in specifically the setting of obstetrics, uh, we only have one OBGYN uh, specialized provider here in Mountain Home, and it's a male provider who's wonderful, but is still a male provider. And so for some of our patients, they don't feel comfortable working with a male provider, and they choose to either go up to Boise or to do some of their care that I'm able to provide here rather than, when, rather than do that travel. Um, but it definitely can be challenging. Uh, most patients would prefer to be seen in Mountain Home, and a lot of our specialists don't come to Mountain Home. And so as much as we can help with that process, it's still a, a bit of a barrier for them. We also have patients that we see here who are doing their own significant travel of, yes, it's about a 45-minute drive up to Boise from Mountain Home, but we have patients who come from Pine or Featherville um, or Bruno and are doing their own one- to two-hour trip to just get here. Uh, so that 
can be challenging too. Uh, but I find that our health system is is very generous um, around that. I've had a couple of patients who, have, for just to give an example, who have gone through wound care at St. Luke's, and they do just an excellent job of taking care of those patients as well as trying to be accommodating too. You have a long drive. You're coming from Pine. Let's do as much as we can for you at home instead of having you come up a couple times a week uh, to do your care. So I think probably access and availability of local providers is one of the bigger challenges of being uh, in this area. Okay. Thanks for describing those challenges and the solutions to working in rural healthcare, Dr. Gray. Um, well, now, as an Echo Idaho attendee, I wonder if you wouldn't mind describing Project Echo in your own words. So for me, Project Echo has been an excellent resource for information on some of the things that uh, we do in medical care that don't necessarily happen all the time um, and that there's not a lot of information on. Uh, for example, with the perinatal substance use disorder series, when I first started here, uh, pretty early on in um, my time, one of our other providers said, hey, we have this patient who's on Suboxone who's pregnant. Um, what are the extra things that we need to do based on her Suboxone use in terms of helping monitor her during her pregnancy? And when you research that, you don't really find a lot. Um, and so this is an awesome resource to have that information that can be difficult to find, but not only to get the perspective of a physician or a high-risk pregnancy specialist, a maternal fetal medicine doctor like Dr. Saib, but also to hear from the nursing side of things, from the social work side of things, um, from the psychiatric side of things and counseling side of things. So something that I really like about ECHO is that they're so focused on this multidisciplinary approach uh, to education that nobody's voice is more important than anybody else's and to recognize that a whole patient requires a whole approach from everybody. Right. And thank you for saying that because it is intentional. ECHO Idaho works super hard to recruit panels that you know, together will will represent an entire patient, a whole patient. Exactly. And it's not that someone gets more screen time than someone else. It's always this collaborative presentation that involves each person of that team because they all matter so much. And for folks who've never joined before, what does it feel like to attend an echo session? You know, how do you join and what time of day is it? Can you orient us a little bit to your experience? It's really easy. It's usually over a lunch hour. Um, so it, it can be what I would do is I would eat lunch and um, listen and participate. Uh, it's very easy to call in um, and to get set up. The biggest thing that we find is that people just have to remember when to unmute their microphones. Um, but it's it's a very uh, interactive uh, way of doing a lecture series or an educational series. So the presentation always starts with more of a formal um kind of lecture, but presentation with a PowerPoint. And there's opportunities at the end of that and kind of throughout with the chat to ask questions about what you're hearing about and what you want to learn more about. Um, and then there's always a break after that presentation to address those questions. And the uh, moderator, uh, Lachelle, always does a great job of trying to actually get people to use their voices and to, to ask that question out loud instead of hiding in the, the privacy and the safety of a chat um, to start that conversation. Uh, and she'll also introduce her own questions to help uh, pull things together and to help maybe think about things that might be on people's minds, but just not something that they're asking or something that they're like, oh, yeah, that is something that's helpful for me to know. I didn't even think to ask that question. 
And then the series usually ends with a patient case presentation. And that's an opportunity for providers uh, to bring in a patient that they are in the midst of seeing or that they've seen in the past for review and for advice. And that's something that I was able to use during um, perinatal substance abuse uh, uh, series to talk about a patient that I really struggled with. How did I approach this challenging social situation of addressing uh, an infant's safety, but also maintaining a relationship of trust. And so that pulls in that multidisciplinary team to talk about, well, the medical provider viewpoint of that, as well as the social work viewpoint of that, as well as the counseling viewpoint of that. Um, And it's a really supportive structure. Um, It's all about telling a provider or somebody who's brought in a case like you're doing a good job and we're we're like so happy to see that you care about this and how can we support you in that process and how do we help provide additional information or just talk about what we could try next time i would you know if you're up for it i would love to hear more about um some of the takeaways from that patient case that you presented at echo and i'm curious too you know did it have any effects on your practice and were you able to employ some of the advice that um that you got from echo i was um, able to take away advice from that case presentation that i had done um it's still a complicated um person and situation uh, it was really helpful to have a group of people say like yeah, like you cared about this and you weren't just being thoughtless and and you didn't do something that was completely off base, as well as these are things that could be helpful for moving forward. It was really about um, trying to protect that therapeutic relationship with a patient while also maintaining uh, safety. And so to talk about kind of what are the options for helping to repair that and what, what might work better in the future, if anything. And so some of it was supportive of what I did as well as saying, and you could also try this. So Dr. Gray, if you weren't participating in Echo Idaho, where do you think you would be getting this, this kind of information? Is it that specialized? It is. And like I was mentioning, with especially the perinatal substance use disorder series, there's just not a ton of information on how to navigate that. Um, I think partially because some of the medications that we have for medication-assisted therapy are somewhat new um, and weren't necessarily commonly used in pregnancy until probably the last decade or so. And so there's just not as much information out there. And even when there is, the practical application of that can still feel and look different than just kind of reading through what a recommendation looks like. Um, So what would I use if I didn't have Echo as a resource? I would probably be reliant on internet um, and things like up to date for maybe treatment algorithms or just recommendations of how to follow somebody um, that's experiencing one of these um, health issues in their pregnancy. And, you know, lastly, what keeps you coming to these Echo Idaho sessions? What do you want to tell other healthcare providers? Why would they want to join themselves? I think that one of the things that's really special about Echo is that it everybody who participates has a very compassionate viewpoint towards patients and it's so much about meeting people where they're at and about being a very judgment-free zone for patients. And so it, it, I think that there's a constant reminder of that from the presenters of saying, you know, yes, our patients are sometimes going to 
not do what we hope for them. Um, but how do we focus on what what they are accomplishing and how do we focus on meeting them where they're at and moving forward in that? And I think that that's really important when you're working with patients who are going through something that's really challenging and really sensitive and affects so many pieces of their lives to just constantly have a group of people who are saying, how do we, how do, we do this compassionately and thoughtfully? And um, how do we help people keep moving forward even when there's some steps backwards? I think that uh, there's also so much opportunity for collaboration and for information that it's not just this didactic presentation where you get this information, you get an opportunity for questions and that's it. It's this presentation of information and then this conversation and then additionally uh, this opportunity to talk about real people and real experiences that people are going through as providers and I think that that's one of the things that's most valuable about ECHO is those patient case presentations where it's that practical application of a, a real patient and real providers who care about those patients and are asking these questions because they want to do the best that they can for this patient. Um, and they want to see what advice they can get in that process. Plus, you don't have to go anywhere. It's right on your computer. You can call in. It's easy. Um, and I don't think that you lose anything in the process of doing it virtually. I really don't. Um, and it, for a lot of providers who are coming from far away or who are living far away, it's a, a really easy way to get involved and to participate. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. We, we loved talking to you and uh, appreciate everything you do for Idaho. Thank you so much. Absolutely. That was Echo Idaho's Marketing and Communications Manager, Lindsay Lotus, interviewing Dr. Katie Gray, family medicine physician at Desert Sage Health Centers in Mountain Home, Idaho. Check out our show notes for a video of Dr. Gray being interviewed about Echo Idaho and the Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. To register for and view a full list of current education series offered by Echo Idaho, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo. Now we'll tune in to an echo session that was recorded on March 10th, 2021, as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. Here to introduce the series panelists and today's presenter is Echo Idaho's former director and session facilitator, Lachelle Smith. Hello, welcome to Echo Idaho. My name is Lachelle Smith. I am the director here and will be facilitating the party today. Um, you have found yourself in the Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Echo series. Um, we are pleased to have a presentation today by Jerry Woodworth, who is an OB nurse and the lead at the support clinic at St. Luke's. Um, we'll give our talk today on substance use and mental health in pregnancy overview and screen. So I will turn it to um, introduce our subject matter experts, our panel of seven folks who will be leading these conversations. And I want to hear who they are and maybe a slightly longer introduction today for our first session. So y'all know um, who you're here with. And then we'll turn it over to Jerry. So let's go Nicole Fox, Larissa Janashek, Rachel Root, Radha Sadacharan, Stacey Saib, Allison Smith, then Jerry Woodworth. Dr. Fox. Hello, I am Dr. Fox, Nicole Fox. I am a psychiatrist. I practice primarily at St. Luke's uh, Boise downtown doing hospital-based consultative psychiatry. I am 
also board certified in lifestyle medicine, and I'm the incoming Idaho Psychiatric Association president-elect. I'm also on the Governor's Council, Advisory Council for Behavioral Health, and um, love this topic and love ECHO. Hi, I am Larissa Janishek. I am a neonatal nurse practitioner at St. Luke's. The neonatology group covers all sites uh, and we rotate through Nampa and Meridian, um, just to let you know. And I focus on neonatal abstinence syndrome as well as pain management and um, developmental support in the neonate. I'm Rachel Root. I am a psychologist. Um, I work in a group private practice setting in Boise, um, and I I provide care primarily for the perinatal um, population, mostly with pregnant, postpartum women and their and families. We treat all mental health conditions at my at my clinic, but that's really kind of my specialty. Hi, Radha Siddhacharan, family med and addiction med doc at the Boise VA. Prior to being in Boise, I was in Houston and in Rhode Island working in corrections. And that's kind of where my love is working with justice involved folks. I'm doing a little bit of work with treatment court here and planning on doing some research focusing on justice involved folks within our community. Hey, I'm uh, Stacy Seib. I'm maternal fetal medicine here at uh, St. Luke's the last 20 years and run a support clinic for pregnant women with their substance use issues and psychiatric issues, I guess, nowadays. That's what I do. Hey, everyone. I'm Allison Smith. I am a family doctor and um, board certified in addiction medicine as well. Um, I work for a company called Boulder Care, which is a telehealth company doing um, low barrier, harm reduction focused um, uh, uh, addiction care, um, currently taking care of patients in Oregon, Washington, Alaska, and recently in Idaho <laughs> and, um, Utah. And I live here in Boise, um, worked years ago for Terry Riley. And, um, so now really focused on substance use disorders. And, um, my passion is also around taking care of patients with criminal justice involvement, um, pregnant moms, and uh, looking at ways at focusing on stigma reduction, harm reduction. Great, thanks. Jerry. Um, I'm Jerry Woodworth. I'm a nurse at St. Luke's Maternal Fetal Medicine. I work with Dr. Seib. Um, I've been an OB nurse my entire career, so 20, almost 22 years now. Um, about four years ago, Dr. Side came to me and said, we're going to start this um, substance use disorder and pregnancy clinic. It'll be about four hours a week. It'll be no big deal. You're a part-time person. It'll um, should fit in great with, with what you're doing. And I said, sure. So I took it on. And um, now I'm up to 20 hours a week. I work part-time um, doing this. And I also work here just in the clinic, which is kind of funny because when I was in school, I was like, nothing, you know, I don't want to do any psych. I'll do any other kind of nursing, but psych nursing is not my thing. But I have found that I love this population. I love these patients. I love working with them. And so I have recently um, enrolled and I just started my psych NP master's program. So I'm hoping to eventually continue to take care of these women kind of in the role I'm in, but um, expand that just a little bit more. I'm just going to do kind of a quick introduction to substance use disorder in pregnancy, mental health stuff. Um, um, so when we start with thinking about substance use in pregnancy, it's kind of like that hot potato. Uh, we get a lot of patients who come to us because 
we don't know what to do with, with her. You know, I can take care of pregnancy or I can take care of addiction, but addiction in pregnancy, I just, I don't know. So these are kind of the, well, you know, the, the partners in the situation here. We've got obstetrics, addiction medicine, behavioral health, and then pediatrics. They have a real big uh, role in this and, and have a lot to say um, about the way we care for, for these women. So really it's kind of a responsibility of all healthcare to take care of pregnant women with substance use disorder. So the learning objectives, I really want to, everyone to commit to using person-centered language um, regarding substance use disorder. This is one of my soapboxes that I stand on a lot. You'll catch me in the hall here saying, hey, we don't use that word. We like to, to be nice and use person-centered language rather than stigmatizing language. We want everyone to become familiar with the basic concepts of addiction, uh, become familiar with screening for substance use disorders and perinatal mood and anxiety disorders um, in pregnancy. Like Dr. Seib said, so our clinic is called the Support Clinic, and that stands for Substance Use, Pain, and Psychiatric OB Resource Team. When we first started, we were focusing on substance use disorder, and quickly we realized that substance use does not live in its own little world. And about 40% or so people with substance use disorder also have a co-occurring mental health diagnosis. So that's where we kind of brought in, well, you know, if we're taking care of these women for their substance use disorder, let's, let's help them with their other issues too. Then just gaining an understanding of caring for the pregnant women with substance use disorder. Women, when they're pregnant, it's a unique time of motivation for sobriety. That being said, being pregnant does not always make women sober. Women have to be ready to be sober for themselves also, but they can also, you know, it plants a seed to be thinking about sobriety. So capturing women at this time is an excellent chance to, to jump in there and do some good. Treating a pregnant woman can have cascading impacts in a family. You know, if you treat a woman with substance use disorder and their children are exposed not exposed to that substance use disorder as children and growing up, or even maybe exposed to less of it, then um, that can have cascading impacts for generations. Um, I really like this statistic. So perinatal mood and anxiety disorders occur in about 21% of pregnancies. Um, substance use disorder occurs in about 5% of pregnancies. Are we screening for those universally? Are we checking for those? Maybe, maybe not. But when you look at things like preeclampsia, that only happens in about 4% of pregnancies. And we check a, a mom's blood pressure every single time she comes in. Gestational diabetes, depending on what you read, 2 to 10% of pregnancies. We check every woman for gestational diabetes. Preterm birth, about 10% of pregnancies. You know, we always ask moms about contractions. So, you know, we have to include some of these other mental health um, screenings for, for patients because these things can impact the pregnancy also. And like I said, these women are already in your practice. If 5% of women have substance use disorder during pregnancy, they're there. They're out there already. Um, if 20% have some kind of mental health diagnosis, they're there. We need to, to be addressing that. You know, there's risks to treating the pregnancy or treating the disorder with medications. Um, and then there's risk to not treating. So that's kind of that balance. You know, we got rid of that um, ABCDX um, rating for, for medications in pregnancy. And it's more of a risk benefit analysis that you need to have with your, your provider to talk about, you know, these are the, the risks for taking this medication in pregnancy. Um, but this is the risk for not taking it. You know, the risk can be, well, maybe there's some issues with um, withdrawal from the baby. 
like say for an SSRI, there may be with risks of withdrawal, um, very small. And it's the different withdrawal than with opioids. But the risk of not treating is if a mom is suicidal, I mean, that can be catastrophic. So um, you just really have to balance that. And it can be very, very rewarding. I, I always, my very favorite day with a patient is their first visit in our clinic. They come to us, generally they're nervous, they're afraid, they're, they're unsure of what to expect. They've made that choice to be here. And oftentimes they will just pour their heart out to me the first time they see me. And I feel so privileged and blessed that, that these women are trusting me with their stories and that they trust that I can help them and that I'm, my heart is in a good place to help them because not all healthcare providers are. I think a lot of times patients will go um, to a healthcare provider and, and people don't know what to do, so they don't do anything. So starting off with language, these are kind of the things that I really don't like to say, substance abuse, uh, junkie, druggy, clean, clean and dirty urine, um, born addicted. That's one thing that, but truly by the definition of addiction, a baby can't be born addicted because it has to have several different components. Um, babies are born physiologically dependent, but they don't have that drive and compulsion to use. So they're truly not born addicted. Um, so we like to say substance use disorder, person with addiction, um, rather than clean, I usually say sober or abstinent um, or in recovery. Patients oftentimes will use these more stigmatizing words because that's how they describe themselves. But I, I try to track them back to using more positive language because I think whatever you set your mindset to be, hopefully you're going to kind of follow that way. So this is a shortened abbreviation of different organizations and how they define addiction. So we have the um, American Society for Addiction Medicine, the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, and you know the DSM-5, just different definitions. And, and you look at them and there's similar components, chronic medical disease regarding brain circuits, uh, chronic relapsing disorder, um, psychological, physical problem. But nowhere in any of these does it talk about a moral failure. And I think as a society, I'm hoping we're getting a little bit better thinking about addiction in more of a framework as a disease and less about, well, they just don't go to church enough. They don't pray enough. They don't. They're weak. You know, we really want to think of it as, as a medical disease. Um, I like to think of it as I heard this quote once that it's a disease of the part of the body that makes decisions. And so that part of why it's so difficult to treat addiction um, and mental illness just in general, that you wouldn't expect a diabetic to make good choices with their pancreas. So if that part of the body isn't working right, then we got to help it get better. There's lots of reasons why people end up um, with substance use disorder. You know, some people can just use substances recreationally, like, like people drink alcohol. Sometimes people smoke marijuana recreationally. Sometimes people use heroin recreationally. It's not common because some of those other drugs can be a lot more addictive physiologically, but it does happen. You know, trauma, escape, prescriptions gone wrong. We see that a lot where patients have been prescribed lots of opioids for a long-term chronic pain issue. And then when it's time to stop those, they can't stop and they don't have good help and they end up um, on opioids. Social pressures, mental illness, social determinants of health um, and the ACEs, if you're not familiar with those concepts, those are things that I really feel like um, people should start focusing on. Um, educate yourself a little bit about that. Um, social determinants of health or social determinants of drug use, um, that's more 
kind of the way you're raised, the way you live, where you're at, how that affects the choices you make and the um, the influences on your health. ACEs is adverse childhood experiences, and that's one of those things where you look at 10 different components, I believe, of what has happened in your life prior to the age of 18. Things like um, witnessing your mom being uh, having domestic violence or having a, a family member who um, who uses drugs in the home or uh, being uh, you know abused. You come up with a number, and the higher the number, the higher the chance. Even corrected for other variables, the higher chance that you can have lots of health issues, including substance use disorder. So for those of you who are not familiar with opioid dependence, you use an opioid, you feel good, come back down to normal. You use the same amount, you feel good, it comes back to normal. Eventually, the more times you use, you're not gonna feel that euphoria um, with the same dose. So, so you don't feel quite as high. And then eventually those opioid receptors in your brain get used to having those opioid molecules on them. And when they're not there, you start to feel bad because those opioid receptors are saying, hey, I like these molecules, I need more of them. I'm gonna let you know by making you feel like crap and we want you to use some more of this um, medication or these drugs. So that's why um, methadone and buprenorphine, which if you're not familiar with that, it's a similar medication to methadone, except it can be prescribed outside of a methadone clinic and, and office setting. We, we prescribe those medications to hit those opioid receptors so people don't feel bad. Get them stable on a medication, they feel good, and then they can work on other issues. I've heard it described as the uh, buprenorphine or the methadone is like a life jacket, it gets you stabilized, but the other work is like swimming lessons. It helps you learn how to, to deal and how you can function in life without using opioids. Um, so harm reduction, that's a pragmatic public health approach to reducing risky behaviors. Um, basic things like that would be, you know, wearing a seatbelt. We know that driving can be dangerous. We know that car accidents are one of the highest risks of, um, of dying, but we try to mitigate that by, by wearing seatbelts. That's why we use things like buprenorphine and methadone, because we know that we're giving someone a replacement opioid, but we're doing it in a way to reduce the risky behaviors of obtaining those opioids illicitly. One of the things that we say in our clinic, like with smoking, that's one that can be really difficult, smoking cigarettes for women to stop. We say, you know, each less cigarette you use is better for the pregnancy and better for the baby. So if you come to me one week and say you're smoking 10 cigarettes a day and the next week you're only smoking seven, I see that as a, as a great advantage. You know, they're, your goal may be to get off and not smoke cigarettes during the pregnancy, but you may not be able to get there. So anything we can do to make the situation better um, is, is what we do. So meeting the patient where the patient is at. Um, so naloxone or Narcan, that's a great um, harm reduction strategy that we use. We know that people are going to use opioids and that naloxone can decrease the, the risk of death by um, having that out in the, the community. So you can buy Narcan um, from a pharmacist without a prescription. So I believe like the last time I checked, it was 18 or $20 at Walmart. So you can have that in your first aid kit. Um, it's a temporary effect. So if you have to give it, you need to call 911. Um, 
but again, that's a harm reduction strategy that we use. Um, the role as an advocate cannot be underestimated. To just stand by these women and say, you know, what do you want to do and how can I help you do it? Um, do you do you need someone to help you speak to your OB who who doesn't want you to take these medications? Do you want me to speak with your partner who thinks you shouldn't be on buprenorphine while you're pregnant? Just being an advocate is is hands down probably the best thing you can do. Um, education, we do a lot of education in our program to anyone, patient, partner, family, um, providers, colleagues here, even in my clinic, I'm always saying, oh, hey, I just learned this. Let me tell you about this. Um, so explain to other people about the whole process of substance use and mental health issues in pregnancy. We work in collaboration with other providers. I really like the concept of staying in our own lanes, but driving down the same freeway. You know, we we don't ever claim to be addiction medicine specialists. We're pregnancy, um, you know, Dr. Sibes is a maternal fetal medicine specialist who has some addiction, um, extra addiction training. But if we get, you know, in over our heads, it's call somebody else and find out what, what the best course of treatment would be. Being empathetic, definitely a, a good thing. And patience, 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 patience. This population has lots of issues beyond their um, substance use generally, lots of psychosocial issues, um, you know, just, just being patient. We have the luxury of not having to discharge in our clinic for um, relapses, which is great because we know that with this disease, there are gonna be relapses. Um, we do like people to be nice to us. We, that's part of our, um, our clinic um, agreements. So when patients come to see us, you know, that they're not gonna, gonna lash out, but sometimes they do. And we need to figure out like what's going on. You know, patients may show up late and, and that can be very, very frustrating to an ultrasound tech or a lab person, or, you know, someone who's looking to keep their schedule, but I need to remind them, Hey, you know, they don't have a car and they had to be dependent on someone else. And I'm so glad that they're even here. So patience, patience, patience. So kind of just to jump back a little bit to talk about screening for mental health, you want to use a validated tool here in our clinic. We use the Edinburgh postnatal depression screen form. I like the EPDS because it is, it's in the public domain, number one. So it's easy to access. It's been translated into pretty much every language you can think of. You can get it online. Um, so it's, it's there in other languages. It's validated in fathers also. So if you have a dad that's got some issues um, and concerns, you can have them fill it out. The scoring is a little bit different for dads, but, um, but it's there. And it can be used, you know, pregnancy, postpartum, you know, anytime. When to screen, this one becomes a variable issue. ACOG, which is the American College of OBGYNs, um, their statement is once in the perinatal period, and if that's during pregnancy, then they need to be screened at the comprehensive postpartum visit, which I would call the six-week visit. Um, here in our practice, the first time they come to our office for anything, they fill out a screening form, which does have the EPDS on it. And then just periodically throughout the pregnancy, I'll go in for an OB visit. People will be talking and I'm like, you know, I've got a, a paper I want you to fill out real quick. And then you can kind of look at it and look at their answers. And that opens up the dialogue. It can be reimbursable. Um, if you're billing a global fee, um, then it may not be reimbursable. I'm by no means a coding person at all. Screening for substance use disorder. Um, again, you'll wanna use a validated tool for pregnancy. Here in our program, we use kind of a modified five Ps, which is actually six questions, but um, it's in the public domain also. 
For those who may not be familiar, the five P's are questions related to substance use by women's parents, peers, partner, during her pregnancy, and in her past. These are non-confrontational questions that elicit genuine responses, which can be useful in evaluating the need for a more complete assessment and possible treatment for substance use disorder. ACOG, again, says early universal screening, so I guess that is up for interpretation. And it also can be reimbursable. But I want to let everyone know that urine drug testing is not screening. Um, you know, sending someone's urine gives you a picture of what's happened in the last, you know, six to 12 hours of their life or whatever. So it doesn't tell you what's happened and what's going on with the woman. It's just here's a period of time and this is what's in her urine. Here in our clinic, we do not send urine drug screens universally. We do not send urine drug screens without patient consent. And I get a lot of uh, feedback on that from other people. But I say, you know, I think it says a lot when someone says, I don't want you to test my urine. I make sure I document that in the chart. Um, social work so far seem to be fine with that. They say, okay, well, I see here she refused a drug screen um, at this point. And if they do refuse, and I, I try to make a, a talk with them and in a dialogue, like, what's going on? You know, you want to talk about this a little bit? And oftentimes they'll open up and talk to you and tell you more, more issues. But bringing a drug screen on someone to, you know, show at their next visit and say, ha I got you, you know, you smoke marijuana. The patient's going to be like, yeah, no kidding. I knew <laughs> it was there. So urine drug testing is not screening. So ESPERT, which is um, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment for substance use disorder. So we talked about the screening part. Uh, the brief intervention is kind of just, you know, counting up the numbers, looking at them, and opening opening the dialogue with them. You know, oftentimes I'll say things like, uh, I see you filled out this, this screen today, and some of your answers were yes. And we know that people who answer yes on one or more of these questions are at higher risk for having issues with substances or substance use disorder. Is that anything that that you're feeling or anything you wanna talk about here today? Um, and a lot of times patients are happy to talk about it or they say, oh yeah, you know, I, I used whatever and I don't use anymore and that's that's fine. But just being able to, to open the dialogue and talk about it and normalizing it and saying, hey, you know, we, we talk about this with everybody, uh, just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. And then here's the where the, the trouble becomes, uh, referral to treatment. You know, what do we do with a patient who's pregnant with substance use disorder? There's lots of programs in general for substance use disorder. Pregnancy kind of complicates things a little bit. Um, counseling is great. Buprenorphine treatment is absolutely appropriate. Methadone is great too. There are four methadone clinics in the state of Idaho, two in Nampa, I believe, and two in Boise. And two of them do not start pregnant women on methadone. So that leaves us one clinic with two locations that will. So methadone is a very, um, it's a hard one to access, but making a list of resources, reaching out and asking other people, you know, do you have any idea where I can send this patient who, who is using substances in pregnancy? You know, networking is what it's going to take. So considerations in pregnancy, substance use is likely to present prior to pregnancy. I don't know of any woman who said, oh, I started using heroin when I was 20 weeks pregnant. That doesn't usually occur. Stranger things happen, but women who have substance use disorder have decreased access to medical care and family planning needs. So we see more pregnancies probably in this population um, that are unintended. 
So that's one thing to consider. And then women just have a unique set of issues related to substance use. You know, they can use um, less amount over shorter duration of time before they become dependent and addicted. We all know that women are at higher risk for traumatic life events. Um, sex hormones can make the brain more sensitive. Um, you know, there's just lots of things that are specifically unique to women. Here's just some ideas of things that we do here in our office that you might want to take into consideration um, outside your normal prenatal care. If anyone has a history of using needles for uh, drugs, IV, or if they've traded sex for drugs in the past, um, we always order a hepatitis C antibody to, with their initial prenatal labs. If that comes back positive, we check the viral load. Sometimes they've cleared it and they, they have no virus, but um, we, we check the viral load and a CMP to check their liver functions. CMP stands for Comprehensive Metabolic Panel. This is a blood test that gives doctors information about the body's fluid balance, levels of electrolytes like sodium and potassium, and how well the kidneys and liver are working. If you're interested in learning more about hepatitis treatment, check out Echo Idaho's Viral Hepatitis and Liver Care series on our website at www.uidaho.edu echo. Ferritin, this is one that Dr. Seib kind of adds to most of his um, prenatal labs, but I just wanted to address, you know, if patients are not, if they don't have adequate nutrition, their ferritin stores may be low and they may be starting the pregnancy kind of behind the eight ball as far as their uh, red blood cells. So check in that. Um, if indicated, you might repeat the infectious disease labs in the third trimester if, if you think that that's an issue. Monitor for growth in the third trimester. We don't routinely just have them set up for, for growth, but we have a very low threshold of um, suspicion to, to do an extra growth ultrasound. Um, we monitor weight gain pretty well, fundal heights, um, you know, just, just checking in if we need to do an extra, extra ultrasound or two to make sure baby's not small. Postpartum birth control, I really like to see this population use LARC, which uh, stands for long-acting reversible contraception. One of those things that you just put in and you don't have to think about, so like an IUD or a Nexplanon in the arm, it, it just helps patients because it's one less decision or one less thing they have to take care of and, and continue um, with their health maintenance. That being said, you know, these women can use anything, but I really, really try to, to emphasize that LARC is a good, a good option for them. Uh, lots of education. We do a lot of education in our program. So NOWS is neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. NAS is neonatal abstinence syndrome. That's what can happen with um, babies and neonates. Talk a lot about pain management and labor, what to expect, um, what they can use for pain management. Legal issues. Um, I can tell you that patients who come to see me almost universally, I could, can go through the dialogue. The first thing they say is, have I hurt my baby or how have I hurt my baby by using substances? And the second one is, are they gonna take my baby away? So this is on people's minds and to talk with them, you know, I'm not a social worker, but I lean on my social workers here at St. Luke's to talk about, yes, you'll see social work in the hospital. Um, CPS may or may not be involved. Um, just educating people, because I think when people know what to expect, things go better, right? It's less confrontation in the hospital, less, you know, the postpartum staff being upset with the patient and the patient threatening to leave and the husband coming in, you know, we don't, we don't want those things, you know, that just makes everything more difficult. So really educating people ahead of time. Um, so barriers to treatment, you know, transportation, that's a big one. A lot of people don't have cars, they don't have health insurance, although with 
pregnancy, almost everyone is eligible for Medicaid. And then with Medicaid expansion, we're seeing more and more patients who have Medicaid all the time, which is excellent because it's really hard to start a patient, get them really stable, and then they lose their insurance and all of their, you know, all this work has gone away. Fear of being um, identified or fear of legal repercussions. We have had patients who deliver at home because they don't want their babies to be taken away. And that scares me to death. So um, really trying to bring down that barrier saying, we're gonna work with you together. I often tell patients, um, just like you want your baby to be safe, we want your baby to be safe, the state wants your baby to be safe, and we can all work together to figure out what the best thing is um, for your family. I just added this one in. So how to make me say bad words. These are the things that I see on referrals that make me want to lose my mind. Um, if you stop all of mental health medication when the patient presents for prenatal care, that one gets me like, ugh. you know, we, you don't want to just stop that. Like, would you tell a diabetic? Oh my gosh, you know, that's not good for you. Or uh, hypertension, you know, that's a great one. You know, if you're on a medication for hypertension that you don't use is not, um, indicated in pregnancy, you don't just say, well, stop all that blood pressure medicine. We'll see what happens. You know, if someone's got severe high blood pressure, you're going to switch them to a different medication. So when someone comes to your office, please do not tell them they need to stop their mental health medications. There are very few mental health medications that are absolutely contraindicated in pregnancy. If you're uncomfortable as a provider, you know, reach out to somebody who knows who can help you with that. Uh, you know, we don't really have a ton of reproductive psychiatrists um, around here, but, you know, reaching out and finding, asking what, what would be a better medication, or if this patient is stable, sometimes just keeping them on the medication they're on. So please don't stop all mental health medication when the patient presents for prenatal care. Refusing to continue to prescribe mental health or pain medications when the patient is pregnant. Here's another one that just absolutely gets me, like, this one we see a lot with the pain specialists. They'll say, you know, we know that these medications can cause problems with pregnancies that can cause problems with babies. So we feel that it's too high risk for us as the pain medicine doctor to continue to prescribe this medication for this woman with this chronic back pain that she's had for years that we've been prescribing for all this time. Like if you thought she needed it before pregnancy, why all of a sudden does she not need it now? Or they'll say, you know, OB needs to prescribe this medication. You know, what makes you think the Dr. Saib, who's done all of this training in obstetrics, knows how to deal with, you know, spine problems? So this is, again, everybody stay in their lane and go down the same highway. We can, we can talk to each other. We can signal to each other. Let's talk back and forth. But, you know, don't just stop it and don't refuse to do things. Um, stopping or weaning medications in the third trimester to avoid newborn admission to the NICU. That's one where, you know, if you've ever been pregnant, you know that the third trimester is the time where you are like, I'm done and I can't cope and I cannot share my body with this person anymore. And to stop your medications is like, ugh. again, it goes back to like this, the earlier one, but really the, the data doesn't support stopping medications because if babies get admitted, they get admitted. You know, it's not the end of the world. Um, they'll be treated. It's a side effect of the medication we know and expect. It happens. And then using the stigmatizing language of being judgmental. I can't tell you how many patients we've had that after we see them, even after their first visit, they say, thank you. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for um, not being rude. Um, they're just happy to have someone that's nice to them. Key points, be nice, 
thinking about addiction in more of a framework as a disease. Again, you want to use a validated tool for screening for substance use disorder and mental health. And then don't be afraid to treat during pregnancy and lean on your resources. You know, we're available here at St. Luke's. Um, we can answer questions. There's yeah, resources in pregnancy. Postpartum Support International is an excellent um, an excellent organization. They have a perinatal provider psychi psychiatric consult line. So if you're a provider and you have a question about a medication, you can call and leave a message and a reproductive psychiatrist will call you back and talk you through some of the issues. Like, you know, this might work or this might not work. Um, the Idaho Quit Line is great for um, smoking. Uh, the Mass General Center for Women's Health is another really good one for, for pregnancy and women's health and medications. I think. Yep. That's it. That again was Jerry Woodworth, OB nurse at St. Luke's Maternal Fetal Medicine Clinic in Boise, presenting Substance Use and Mental Health in Pregnancy Overview and Screening. That lecture was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck, as well as information about how to contact some of the organizations and services mentioned in that talk, are available in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live ECHO sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Season two of Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible with funding provided by BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain was supported by grant number 15PBJA21GG04557COAP, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view or opinion in this recording are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. Well, Contributing voices on today's episode were those of Nicole Fox, Larissa Janishek, Rachel Root, Radha Sadacharan, Stacey Seib, Allison Smith, Jerry Woodworth, Lachelle Smith, Lindsay Lotus, and Katie Gray. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Yeah.